G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday the 6th of February 2024 and our topics this week are calls to bring back conscription and inflation is receding. That's great news. We'll dive into that a little bit later on, of course, we've got our Two Ticks Town Talk in between, and we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deet and finish off, as always, with a Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up on the last week. Uh, deet, what's been going on? G'day, DK. Uh, been doing, we've, we've, my, the wife and I have christened them chain and chip sessions in the garden because we've got a few trees and that that we like to uh once the once the trees sort of grown up to a certain uh amount we've we planted a, a number of our trees you know 13 years ago and then have been planting since since then but once they get to a certain uh height you can sort of cut off the lower branches raise the canopy and it just gives a look that we we like and we've got a a mound uh of dirt on our our block that's got a whole lot of bushes and trees that uh, we wanted to do that too. So we thought we'll we'll have chain and chip sessions. So basically, I've been chainsawing off the the lower branches, chucking them on the little trailer attached to the the ride on mower, and uh, driving them over, dumping them into a pile. And uh, wife's been <laughs> feeding them through the the chipper at a great rate of nights. So when they're green, it's good to. Uh, it's good to get them through. You can actually get sort of a reasonable size branch through without putting too much stress on the the chipper. Although we did end up um, did it, the first time I've had to replace the belts on it. But look, in fairness, it's had pretty heavy duty cycle for a, a few years now, and uh, yeah, one of the could smell it at one. It wasn't sort of working as well. I thought, oh, maybe it's a not needs a bit of a blade sharpen. So took that apart, got the sharpen the blades, and then you could sort of smell that rubber, that that burning belt, and had a look. And one of them sort of hanging off. Oh um, no! Yeah, and then when I went to replace it, the other one that was left there was about half the width of the the other ones. So look, it was it was a fairly straightforward repair, which is good. Uh, got the spares, so. Yeah, I was just one I mean, of those things, just sort of mid-swing, and you think, "Oh, damn, I want to get going." <laughs> oh, no, I got to stop, and we got to yeah, sort it all out. And... Yeah, yeah, but look, you know, it's 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 a good machine, and it's yeah, just a simple. Was it the Hansa C seven or something? My brother-in-law had recommended it, so you basically just got a, a Honda engine. And a couple of belts that drive just a, a, a big, <laughs> heavy rotating flywheel with a couple of um, mean-looking blades on it. So, yeah, and, a, and a big chute, obviously, just to chuck the stuff down. So, yeah, I think you're limited to about, oh, was it 70, 65, 70 mil uh, diameter when they're, they're green, which is plenty for what we, we need. If they're bigger than that, they tend to be just going to to firewood. but yeah, so I had a couple of those, which is which has been good. Good to get things neat and tidied up. Oh, and that's what I also also what I meant to to tell you. Just listen, DK and I were having a bit of a chat before 
um, as we were getting things sorted for this uh, one and we're talking about grass and it reminded me, we are looking at uh, edging because we've got, I think it's Kaikuyu here, which is great to choke choke out weeds, but it runs. Yes. (laughs) It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. unstoppable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. So we... Went down to the landscaping place uh, and we're asking them about uh, just sort of like, you know, uh, metal um, edging and we're sort of saying, well, how deep would you go down? The guy goes, oh, he said, look, I've, I've got mine down reasonably deep and it doesn't seem to make a difference. And there was a bloke there who was a, like, was a professional landscaper and he said, we've put down barriers a metre deep and put plastic lining out in an L shape. He said, it still gets through. He said, it just doesn't seem to make any difference. So that was our question answered, but I was surprised about a metre still getting the runners. It it is unstoppable that that grass and they don't, you don't generally get it up here in Queensland, uh, but if you do, you have to be. Everyone warns you don't don't put it down because if you do, it's it really is unstoppable. Whereas most grasses, you know, they of course you know different grasses. Some go to seed, some some send out uh, the shooting uh, little runners, and yep. you know different grasses. You can kind of contain to certain areas depending on what they're tolerant to. So you know some really like. Uh, 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 dark wet areas uh like i have a a type of carpet grass in my backyard that um just uh, absolutely adores the shade of trees and things like that it is a wonderful grass but you can't you can't really get it to go out into full sun because as soon as it starts to dry out it just it just shrivels up and dies so it's very easy to kind of restrict to certain areas for that reason um and like the cooch i have is the the literally the opposite uh it loves the sun it loves uh it does love a bit of water but when it dries out it'll it'll just turn brown and then it'll spring back as soon as we get the rain sort of thing so there's sort of like this nice balance uh, between the two, but you get something like that in there, and it'll oh. it'll kill everything else. Uh, it'll try and dominate everything. It'll grow into the gardens. You know, your entire yard just becomes uh, this monoculture of grass. It's just, it, it look if that's what you're after and that's what you're going for, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But um, look, it's a two-edged sword. It's a two-edged sword. It's it's something that seems to have. Um established itself and given how our block has moved from um blackberries to to cape weed to um then paspalum being the dominant ones uh where this is growing it's choking out a hell of a lot of those weeds so where it is the grass actually looks like a a lawn so um so that's an up, that, that is an upside. So you know. it's a huge upside. Yeah. yeah. So look, but the the runners are a bit of a problem. But look, a little bit of um, roundup, or if it's near the the veggies and that um, a big hoik of uh, the the slasher, and a bit of hand digging and pulling seems to be uh, seems to do the the job. So 
Yeah. What, what about you? What have you been up to this week? Because I got way late on the Kaikuyu. <laughs> uh, a little bit of the same, actually. A bit of gardening. Uh, we did have a couple of nice days of... Uh, at the moment, we're still in a heat wave. I'm still whinging about the heat up here, the humidity. Uh, but I did manage to get out into the garden, do a bit of weeding. I, I actually have a couple of plants that I need to... A couple of trees that I need to put in the ground. Um, but it's either been too rainy or too bloody hot to get out there. But I sort of started to prepare excuse me, started to prepare the site and uh, I thought I don't want to spray any toxic chemicals to kill some of these weeds that have sort of popped up. Uh, so being a military man, I grabbed the next best thing. My mind immediately jumped to uh, effectively a small uh, flamethrower. It's a <laughs> weed burner, but uh, I've sort of customized it a little bit so uh it's very cool uh very impressive to see especially at night uh and i had a great time getting in the garden and burning away all the weeds it's it's very effective at what it does how'd you how'd you customize it out of interest oh i just look you know can't say too much because i'm not sure if uh it's completely allowed but uh the flame is 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 very impressive that comes out of it (laughs) it's a decent Um, flame it's a very big claim, very, very, very hot, uh, and it, it works absolutely excellently. The problem is, uh, I didn't know this, uh, but it was next to some lily pillies, and I got a little bit too close to the lily pillies. Uh, I didn't touch the lily pillies, uh, but obviously I got a little bit too close, and the heat itself, just the heat from it, uh, has effectively actually completely killed one of my lily pillies. Um <sighs> It's it, wow. it, it. It already sort of got to one side of it, but I think it was enough of a shock uh, that it, it it basically all the green on it now is shriveling up and dying, and I, I don't think I'm going to be able to save it, unfortunately. So I'm oh, actually, um, yeah, I am. I'm really upset. Uh, I was having a great time, probably too much of a good time, oh. and as a result, now uh, one of my favourite plants is is really suffering. So. The good news is the plants that I'm planting are more lily pillies. So I'm kind (laughs) of, I can easily rectify the issue that I've just created. But, you know, that lily pilly probably was in the ground. It was reasonably young, which is why I think it was so effective, uh, so affected. It was probably only about 12 months old, which is disappointing because, you know, these these plants do take a little bit of time to really get established and and all the rest. So um, lessons learned. Uh, yep. Go with the the roundup, not the flamethrower, uh, oh. and we'll just, you know, in future. Now we know we don't make those same mistakes again. Oh, a combination, because I mean, yeah, the flamethrower flamethrower does sound like fun. Oh, it's so much fun. Speaking <laughs> about fun, Australia is considering bringing back conscription, or as some experts say, they are considering they must. Consider bringing back conscription as an all-out war looms with Russia. What? Dr. Alexei Muravev, Associate Professor Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University, says that Australia must seriously consider reintroducing conscription to boost its troop numbers in the face of an quote-unquote all-out war with Russia. Rapidly rising global tensions in Eastern Europe and the Middle East threaten to drag Australia into an orbit of open confrontation. 
He's also added that it may be time for Australia to consider another uncomfortable subject, the return of national service. Back in 1972, Labor under Gore Whitlam abolished the National Service in peacetime, even though it could still be reactivated in times of war. 52 years later, Dr. Merevev is asking if we'd reconsider reintroducing a form of a National Service to increase a pool of trained reserves while we still have time. Successive Australian governments have also recognised the inadequate size of the Australian Defence Force with former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Morrison? Scott Morrison? ScoMo! Pledging a, <laughs> <laughs> pledging a 30% increase to a target of 80,000 personnel by 2040. This is a policy that is also supported by Labor and the current Labor government. Also, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott last year floated the idea of mandatory military service for school leavers. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, in a speech last week, General Sanders, the UK's UK's chief of general staff, said any conflict would need to be a whole-of-nation undertaking and that citizens should be trained and equipped to be in a state of readiness. Within the next three years, it must be credible to talk of a British army of 120,000 personnel folding in our reserves and our strategic reserve. Earlier this month, the chair of NATO's military committee, Admiral Bob Bauer, said civilians and member states should be prepared for a potential future war with Russia. And all of this is happening when most Western countries, including Australia, the US, and most NATO nations, oh my goodness, I can't talk, (laughs) are having massive recruitment issues. (laughs) Simply put, we cannot get enough recruits to fill the ranks. And this is where conscription is a possible solution. But it's worth remembering what you gain in numbers, you definitely lose in selective capability. Meaning that you, yes, you do have more people, but what you don't have is people that generally, most of these people don't want to be there. Morale is a lot lower. And generally, they have a lower standard of training and capability than completely full volunteer militaries. Mm. So what you either increase benefits to entice people away from other industries and into the defense sector, or you have to lower your standards through something like conscription or national service, however you want to describe it. Uh, There is no good win in my opinion, with a conscription army. I know they've been quite effective in the past, generally speaking. Uh, But the war in Ukraine, the quote-unquote special military operation, uh, is being fought largely with a Russian conscripted army. And uh, they're doing pretty good, aren't they? So I think we need to... I don't think it's a bad idea to have a larger strategic reserve. So, you know, it, even if that becomes what we call national service, to go into a, a reserve pool, people that are actively or have have some training, uh, maybe not a lot, but even a couple of weeks of training can definitely help 
in in a lot of situations. Uh, yep. However, I don't believe uh, having a full conscript defence force for Australia is a good thing because it, it it actually does reduce our capability to actually do things, and it and it reduces the capacity for our defence force to invest in things like like last week when we spoke about the acquisition of HIMARS and joining. AUKUS and, and all these other defense initiatives are very, very expensive uh, and very, very high tech. Yeah. And when you start introducing like literally 100,000 more people into your defense force, the biggest cost of the defense force right now is wages. It, it all goes out the window. Um, and a lot of those programs can't really work very well. You have to buy a lot more equipment to basically kit out those personnel and things like that. The strategic reserves of uh, arms, so small arms, you know, rifles, uh, grenades, machine guns, those sorts of yep. things, those are all reduced. Uh, uniforms, uh, th- there's a whole heap of things. And that's not even before we start to talk about uh, benefits to Defence Force personnel that current Defence Force personnel get that potentially these conscripts won't get. So then there becomes a divide within the force of the people that were here first, uh, your leadership that maybe have a better superannuation scheme, that Mm. maybe get paid more, Mm. that maybe get more benefits when they leave the defense force, as opposed to the conscripts, which maybe are under a different piece of legislation, and maybe they don't get access to some of these benefits, or they don't get access to as a higher pay salary and things like that. I think there's a lot of complications that go into a conversation like this that there's a lot of nuance that's lost when a lot of people that don't really know what they're talking about just go, yeah, you know, bad guy over there. We need to have lots of men to counter that. <laughs> yeah, and look, you uh, hearing you talk about that, you, it's, it, it highlights one of the things that's often, yeah, I'm not, I don't have military service. I don't have a, um, uh, a particularly high level of, you know, studying things in the military. But I do know from what I have looked at and also speaking to, you know, blokes like yourself and other friends that one of the uh, things that is just constantly overlooked by people who've got uh, either, a, you know, a romantic or bureaucratic view of the, the, the military is the support structure that's required to actually just send that yeah the tip of the spear into to battle the supply logistics the um organization behind the 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 scenes the everyday pushing of paperwork that's required so that you can get x number of uh defense personnel just at the, the the front and keep them there it's it's a it's a massive part of it and when you were underlining those uh or highlighting some of those things such as you know the the, the wages the, the 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 culture the the, the managing what would essentially be by, viewed by some as a, a a car system the simple logistics of okay you throw a hundred thousand extra people into there how do you feed them how do you house them how do you clothe them i mean that's that is just massive it's not just as um it's not just a, a stroke of the pen and no. no, I mean, yeah, it, it is, but it isn't. Obviously, in a well, war, yeah, yeah. in a war type scenario, you know, there is this 
capacity that that can be increased. But I think the the key thing here is if there's a war, a, a global war, World War Three, if you like, uh, those there are obviously logistics plans. There are stores of uniforms. There are there are like you know th- there are cogs that can start turning to yep. to you know this big machine can start working uh to get on a, a total war fit footing but as you've exp- as you've very elegantly put uh, uh the logistics of a huge reserve force are one very expensive to the taxpayer because these cogs are going to start turning essentially at that stroke of that pen and as a result you know and they do take time to ramp things up but yep it, it, it's not immediately think people are going to start running around doing stuff and and all of that does take a lot of money and and a lot of effort and a lot of coordination and wars absolutely are won on the on logistics yeah. um yeah and the problem i see is having a huge because uh, when we talk about a conscript army for most people that don't understand we're talking about generally having some form of national service so you know you turn it generally it's it's on an age thing or it might be there might be exemptions if you're doing like higher education like university or something like that uh but let's say you finish high school when you turn 18 you have to go to the military for say 12 months uh, six months, something like that. Different countries, it works in different ways. Uh, and you are then required to do something. There will be a bunch of basic, basic jobs that conscripts will do. And again, this varies from country to country and it varies by, um, by requirements and things like that. But like, you know, you may have a uh, truck driver, cook, uh, infantry soldier, which we call rifleman, uh, and and a handful of basic roles similar similar to those basic roles in the air force and in the navy uh, that all the conscripts can do. And then if they do want to continue and sign on full time, then maybe they'll have a choice of more complex roles that take more training mm. uh, or a leadership position and and things like that. So. You you really do, as you said, you really do create almost like a caste system within the defense force, and mm. morale for these conscripts is generally very low because a lot of them don't want to be there. They don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, they're given shit jobs basically, uh, and they're the they're they you know the bottom of the rung, and they're not they're not having a good time. Um, and and as a result of that they're generally not as effective in their jobs. No, why would if you, you know, people would uh, know if they've worked in uh, anywhere with you know, more than a couple of people, if someone's a disgruntled member of, of the team, they're not productive and it can have a very negative effect on uh, the people around them. So, yeah, look, that that mindset, there was, there was, two, there was two mindset um themes I had with this. One problem I have with this uh the narrative that's being pushed by this article, and it's not the only one that's doing it. It's it's being pushed as a theme in a number of, of countries, is that it creates a, a mindset 
where it's talking past the sale and people are assuming there's going to be a war. So people are thinking now there's a war that's going to happen, so what are we going to do about it? Now, hopefully that's not going to to happen. I I can see the argument that, based on what we've been talking about with the amount of preparation uh, that's required to get this machine's inertia, uh, sorry, get this machine's momentum happening and break its inertia, I still think it's a dangerous mindset. The other mindset that uh, I want to mention was I noticed in our subreddit and a few of the other um, subreddits that this uh, topic about uh, conscription was was posted in. There was a lot of people saying was was looking at this as this is what the government um, is proposing, and their response is, "Why would I fight for them?" And I thought in this age where the politics has become particularly divisive, in the past there might have been a bit of a, a unified view of the nation, whereas now it's sort of like my team is in or my team's not in. So if my team's not in, why would I put my life on the line for that mob there that I didn't vote for? And I thought that was an interesting um, insight into, I don't know how big the mindset is, but I can understand people saying, look, you don't do anything for us. Why would I do this for you? There's a, I think there's a lot of young people that feel that way, where they look yeah. at it and go, you know, the economy's not good, doing good. The And when I say young people, we're talking about sort of the uh, Gen Z or the Zoomers, as they like to be called, yep. and sort of the kids younger than that, so the Gen Alpha kids. Um, these young people have grown up in a post-9-11 world. Uh, they are basically sick of war. You know, they, they've dealt with the the older ones, the Iraq War, the Second Gulf War, uh, and basically all of them Afghanistan as well. A war that basically didn't have an end um, and no real... Oh. No real end in sight. The whole thing fell over very quickly, and that's a whole other subject. But these kids are looking at it going, our future isn't necessarily super bright as is in this country. We don't have access to, uh, you know, uh, uh, just housing is a huge problem. And this isn't unique to Australia. This is, you know, unique to, I would say most of the Western world is suffering the same thing. Um, You want me to work until I'm 70 years old. Uh, You want me to go and get massive debts for education. And then I can't afford rent. Uh, So I have to live with my parents or friends or, you know, these kids are looking at what a lot of, say, millennials. I think a lot of millennials uh, sort of fell for the the quote-unquote trick of it all, you know, um, mm. of the promises of our society that our parents told us that basically didn't come true. And these younger generations are seeing it for what it is. And they're very... 
disenfranchised as a result. They're very disengaged politically. Um, they basically are looking at a situation like this, like a global war type situation going, I don't care. Like, I don't want to go overseas and kill anybody. I don't want to be part of this industrial uh, military complex where people are getting rich off bombing kids in Yemen. And I can't really blame them. They're very clever. These kids are not stupid. Yep. And they see it for what it is. the information streams that they've got out there, yeah, there was, there was arguably, uh, you know, ways in the, the, the past that with, uh, yeah, sort of the, the, the media and that being a little bit more controlled, that uh, you could sort of hide some of that uh, that information. But now you have them with access to, oh, this is what you know, Northrop Grumman made out of this. This is what Boeing made out of this. This is what you know, all the other ones here. This is how much they're costing. And there is that information there for them to be able to come to those conclusions that you're talking about. Yeah, and they don't like it because they're not shareholders. They don't, like, <laughs> that's funny, but also legitimately, like, there is no benefit to them. A lot of the lawmakers, particularly in the US, um, and wealthier people have investments in these companies. And so when they're dropping bombs or when a war is declared, you know, their share prices jump. Uh, and if you're not part of, if you're not a shareholder, you're going to look at this going, there's no benefit at all and this is morally corrupt which i'm not saying it's not but if yeah, you are yeah. a shareholder you can go oh well i just got richer so that's good for me you know you can kind of turn a blind eye somewhat because you can justify it in other ways so i think some of these kids have a real uh have some good heads on their shoulders and are thinking straight but <laughs> i'll caveat this with I do think there is something to be said that, you know, Australia is a great country. Um, and I think there is something, it, it is worth defending. The The Western yep. democracies are worth defending. They're not perfect, you know. Mm. You know, uh, there have been some absolutely horrific things in the past that we've done. But I also think it's important to remember that Generally speaking, the Western democracies of today are, with exception of Iraq and Afghanistan, are not the aggressors. Well, actually, Afghanistan, you could argue 9-11 kicked that off. So, you know, America wasn't technically the aggressor in Afghanistan, but Iraq was a bit of a different story. So the war in Ukraine is a good example because there's, there is a lot of potential that the war in Ukraine will kind of spiral into a larger global conflict. Yeah. Uh, and just like the Second World War did with... Uh, Poland and, and, and in China with the Japanese and things like that, it sort of blew up into a larger global conflict. And there, there's a huge risk here that uh, Ukraine may do the same sort of thing. And there'll be an all-out war with Russia. And I think in a, in a situation like that where, you know, NATO is an example, it, it, a lot of younger people really hate this idea of, of what NATO stands for. But I think it's worth remembering that it is a defensive alliance. It is there for the benefit of so many of these people that criticize it can do so because of the conditions that were created because it exists. 
you know we talk about oh we're wasting money on AUKUS and we're wasting money on buying these new missiles and we're wasting money on this this and this the reason uh, that these weapon systems are so valuable is when they're not used their value is in deterrence and so if there is no war that is a a dividend of peace that enables people to make choices to not be a conscript to go and get a job in whatever it is you know and i think it's worth remembering because we get so caught up in our lives and there's a lot of talk online about it's very easy to just sort of bash things and then the other side comes out and like you said you know oh well why should i die for uh, albanese and it's like yeah. you're not you're not dying. You're not going to fight for a political party unless it's like a civil war. That's a whole different thing. But in a global conflict, you're fighting for the 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 institutions that exist in the Western world, the values of Australia, the the benefit that you have by you know going down to the shops and saying that. Uh, making fun of Albanese or, or ScoMo or whoever it is, the fact that you can do that, the freedoms that you have are the reason that it is worth fighting for if if it ever comes to that. And I God, I hope it doesn't. But well, at least I, in my mind, that's the reason it's worth fighting for. It's not it's not for some political party. It's not for 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 any of that. Um, it's for the lifestyle that you live in, potentially that their children can live. But again, as much as I say that, I can hear, <laughs> I can hear voices listening to this going. But why would I support the current, you know, the current state of the country and the world, and like burn it all down? And well, I but don't know. It even has to be burn it all down. It has to be, yeah. Look, there was in the in the same way as there was a shift in uh, a, a lot of large corporations and let's let's use the the banks as an example you know i'm um uh, you know i'm 60 this year so i'm old enough to have been uh brought up on uh if you're loyal to the bank they'll be loyal to you if you have your savings account with them then that stands you in good stead for your your loan if you do business with them they'll work out how to do business for you and then we saw that uh change coming in through the the, the 90s where uh, the the bonds of loyalty started to be broken uh and where it's to the point now of it doesn't matter how loyal a customer you may have been there's no reciprocal loyalty and i feel like i've seen that switch with um with with government since the start of the since the start of this this century in, in particular in particular where uh, you could sort of argue there was a, a, a I mean look there's always been division there's no there's no doubt about it I mean you've you know, we talked golf Whitlam before and that and you know way back then even 1975 I was sort of aware of that as a you know, as a as a younger kid, that they there was that division, but there was there was still a a sense of national unity. I feel like a lot of that national unity has actually been broken because of the divisiveness that's been introduced into politics and what seems like a 
differentiation between the, uh, the the sort of bureaucrats in power and their their friends, and the people who are paying the the, the taxes and the generations coming up, who, as we were saying before, are saying, "Well, I'm not getting any dividends from this. I've had stuff taken from from me." I'm not actually getting uh, feeling like I'm as part of this, as much a part of this country as people used to feel in in the past. That feeling of almost being just a commodity, the the, the cattle, I think, is a reasonable cynicism to to have. Now you can you can argue uh, you, you made some good points there about. Um, yeah, the freedoms that we've got. And there was a term that I heard today. Why? What was it? It was something like the um oh, something like the, the, the familiarity syndrome. It was something it was Patrick Bet David on Bill Maher's Club Random podcast. Someone said, I have a listen to 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 this, and I'd listen to that, but he was talking the the ter- the sense he was using about there. He was talking about all the things that he'd seen in Bill Maher's house that he looked at and he said, oh, wow, look at this, wow, look at that. And he said, but because of this um, familiarity syndrome or familiarity um, complex, I can't remember the exact word, it was familiarity something, he said, you no longer really see that. It's no longer sort of uh, special to you. So a lot of those things such as, you know, the freedom to, you know, post on Twitter, I think Albo's a dick or ScoMo's a dick, we're so used to them and so familiar to them that their value is actually reduced. But the negative side tends psychologically to evoke a real um, emotive response in people. And I can understand the cynicism within that way of looking at it. I can understand the cynicism of uh, a lot of the younger people. Yeah, look, and I'm not... I'm not trying to uh, have a go at young people. No, no, like I no, said. no. I, I didn't think um, that. It, it is. I just want to make that clear for all our listeners because I'm not. I, I completely understand, yeah. and I do think that part of it is. I think part of it also comes from the the feeling of disenfranchisement that they have. You know, they they don't feel like they're represented. They're they're politically disengaged because of that. Um, and, and I completely understand why if you can't, if you can't invest your future or feel like you don't have a future invested anywhere, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, why are you going to potentially look at giving the ultimate sacrifice for that thing? You know, as you've said, you made some really good arguments, um, at I love that idea that you become, we just, we do, we become so um, used to our own culture and environment that we feel like um, they're basically, you know, we sort of forget what the alternatives are or we sugarcoat the alternatives and, and sort of mm. think that they're, they're somehow better. Um, that's why I think like traveling in that is so important, experiencing different cultures and different environments and seeing how other people live. And once you start to understand those cultures, that sort of culture shock can actually be really beneficial. Um, unfortunately, the reality is as well is that 
because of COVID, because of, you know, wage stagnation, because of a lot of things, there's a lot of young Australians that would love to go and do these things that just can't financially. Mm. A lot of them would love to own their own home. But that is a dream that some of them have basically just gone, oh, that's not going to happen. Like, that won't happen in my life. I'll never own my own home. And oh, that must that be. Com- we see that comment all the time on the sub, don't we? Yeah. And, and that must be the, the you know, f- for our foreign listeners, in Australia, it's kind of like, you know, it, you have the quote unquote stereotypical American dream. The Australian dream isn't too far from that. It's sort of, you know, you own your own house, your own, um, own little sort of quarter acre block in the suburbs and you have a couple of cars and your dog and your kids. And it's very similar to that American dream with its own sort of cultural twists. Um, and the reality is, is for a lot of young people in this country, that's so far out of reach that it's not really possible. And I think there's a lot of resentment to some of the established, uh, political parties the established sort of elite whether whether that's real or imagined it just sort of doesn't matter um and a lot of that's older a good people point. it doesn't necessarily matter in some ways yeah it doesn't matter if it's true or not because the you know the a lot of these zoomers hate the older generations uh the, the baby boomers uh, is a good example. You know, we saw a couple of years ago the the OK Boomer and all that stuff. There's this resentment between the ages um, because a lot of the young people feel like their their future was taken by the older groups. And I'm not here to say that's true or not, but when you have a young group of people that feel this way on average, how can you look to them and go, because remember a lot of our leaders are of that older generation, So they have resentment for them for that reason alone. And then they look to them and go, all right, well, the shit's the fan now, guys, because we didn't basically, because we didn't do enough diplomacy to make it not happen. Uh, You guys have to, you have to go and solve our problem. And so they go, no, we're just not going to do it. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, in, on, on that solving the, the problem side. Okay. There's, You've got this call for bringing back uh, cons- conscription, but if it is as because uh, I can't remember if it was in that article or another article where they were also talking about oh, and also what happened if you know if if China's going to be a threat to Australia um, as in our geographical location, regard as a, a, a separate issue to Australia maybe having to send troops overseas. Uh, with the s- solutions being discussed here, I mean, conscription, okay, might be one thing, but then you say, well, what else are you thinking of? Yeah, are you thinking, of, thinking about uh, considering a, a model such as they have in uh, Switzerland, where you essentially have a whole lot of people armed with uh, military-style rifles? I mean, it works for them. I know there's always the big bogeyman of... Of, of America and everything that you know gets dragged out by the the anti gun people, but if this is so serious, uh, why isn't that being discussed? And the other thing that's uh, I think would need serious discussion that has a lot of potential uh, positive flow on benefits is a strong manufacturing industry, and Australia doesn't have a particularly good 
manufacturing industry. So if push comes to shove, uh, you need to be able to turn the wheels of machinery to towards war. But if you don't have those wheels of machinery there in the first place, I mean, what do you get? What are we going to do? We're going to buy our weapons from China. We're going to buy our um, our rare earth magnets from from China or somewhere else. Are we going to be buying our um, you know, manufactured fertilizer from from Russia? It's just not going to happen. So, you know, I find some of this talk oftentimes a little bit hollow because I think, okay, that'll get us so far. But if you really want to have a strong defensive uh, defensive force here in the nation, there's a hell of a lot more you have to have than just a number of people prepared to go up the front. You have to be able to back them up and you have to be able to back them up from behind the lines. And if the lines are our national border, at the moment, we've got basically nothing. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's that's probably a really good way to end the subject. I'm mindful we probably need to move on. I know, but... I was just thinking we're going on, but yeah. <laughs> Look, this is something we could talk about, and we probably will continue to talk about this as things come along, but I just want to leave. There's a There was a poem uh, written during, I think it was during World War One. Uh, it's very short and sweet, and I think we'll leave it on that and we'll move on to our two ticks town talk. But basically it boils down to this idea of imagine if there was a war, but no one came. Mm. Now, let's move on this week. Two ticks town talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Two weeks ago, I spoke about the Pink Lake on an island outside of Western Australian town of Esperance. This week, we're travelling 1,750 kilometres from there to Mount Gambier, South Australia, right on the border with Victoria. And we're going to talk about another lake. That's right. This isn't Two Ticks Town Talk. This is Two Ticks Lake Talk. <laughs> it's a, it's a, well, this, this lake's not pink. This lake's blue. It's actually called uh, the, the Blue Lake. Um, <laughs> it's also known as uh, War War. Uh, it is a large, monomeic crater lake located in the dormant volcanic crater. That's right. Australia does have volcanoes. We have briefly spoken about this before, but for listeners that haven't listened to the past or are unaware, Australia does not have any active volcanoes. Um, and we have very few dormant volcanoes, but this one is also dormant. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, and it, there are conflicting dates on the estimation for its last eruption. And these vary wildly from... <laughs> 4,300 years ago, 6,000 years ago, or 28,000 years ago. I know, geographically speaking, they're all in the blink of an eye, but I don't know. It just seems like a wild estimation. Either way, it's very unlikely to erupt anytime soon. Um, And that's great. So, this is a fun fact. A little bit of history. The peak of the dormant Mount Gambier crater was sighted in 1800 by Lieutenant James Grant from the survey brig HMS Lady Nelson. And it was named after Lord James Gambier, 
Admiral of the Fleet. And it was the first place named by the British in what would later become the colony of South Australia. Huh. Once again, a geographic feature named after a man that lived very, very far away. The Blue Lake, also called Wawa, is one of four lakes in the dormant volcano complex and the sites of cultural significance to the Boendic people who assigned dual names by the city of Mount Gambia in February 2022, which is kind of cool. So their traditional name for the lake is Wawa. Ah, right, right, yep. Blue Lake is thought to be an average of 72 metres or 236 feet deep and in places reaches 75 metres or 246 feet deep. But there are some unconfirmed mentions Couple of couple of stories about a cave, a natural cave that drops down a whopping two hundred and four or six hundred and sixty nine feet, two hundred four meters uh, at its maximum yeah. depth. Uh, but again, it, it's not really explored because it seventy two meters. Whilst that is quote unquote quite shallow, it's also like pretty deep you're not going scuba diving you know so that's who's, pretty who's extreme 72 meters was shallow uh it's called a shallow lake so I wow don't know. i thought 72 was a fair way down it feels like it's it's not a very wide lake uh so i'll get into some physical measurements uh actually no i didn't write them down uh it's about it's about 200 meters across it's roughly circular um, it's sort of like an oval shape. Uh, so it's not, it's not massive. And I feel like it, massively wide. So I feel like, um, 72 to 75 meters league, uh, deep is, is actually, you know, fairly deep, but they do call it a shallow crater. I think it's because volcanic, uh, Volcanic craters can be absolutely huge. So, uh, so I've got some figures here. Maximum width is 657 meters or 2,165 feet. And its length, as I said, it's sort of oval shaped. Its length is 1,087, sorry, meters wide or long, and th- which is 3,566 feet. So I guess when you consider its length to depth ratio, I guess you could call it, uh, shallow but i don't know 72 meters seems pretty deep to me but as i said there are unconfirmed uh reports of there being a cave system underneath which may be a little bit of foreshadowing now each november the lake turns and the reason it's called blue lake and the reason i'm even talking about it is because (laughs) each november the lake turns a deep turquoise color gradually turning into a duller blue in February to March. Now, Adit, I'm going to send you a photo right now. And this photo is in the public domain, so we can, we'll put it in the show notes as well, so that all of you listeners, if you're listening to this in a car, pull over, have a look, see this color of this lake. It's very blue. It's stunning. It's amazing. Uh, it that, looks like it was dark like a, blue. Uh, what we what did you say just then? 
It looks like it was dyed blue. I, it does. I was going to say it looks like somebody's put a, a filter on and just cranked it up. Yeah. Yep. Or oh. like, you know, uh, sometimes in the toilets you have that blue dye in the <laughs> upper cistern. It looks like that. Um, so, and the, well, the, the amazing thing is that it it is seasonal, that it changes this colour. And because during uh, February to March, so during the sort of the, the those months, it's, it's much, much duller. So the exact cause of this color change phenomenon is still a matter of conjecture, but it likely involves the warming of the surface layers of the way, the, the, blah, 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 the warming of the surface layers of the lake during the summer, which get to about 20 degrees Celsius on average, which is 68 Fahrenheit. Uh, causing calcium carbonate to participate out of solution and enabling microcrystallites of calcium carbonate to form. This causes a scattering of the blue wavelengths of sunlight, which gives it that blue color. And during winter, the lake becomes well-mixed and recent research indicates that during this phase of the color cycle, the lake is somewhat murkier due to the redistribution of tannins and calcium carbonate particles throughout the lake. The solar elevation has also been found to influence the perceived color of the lake and the movement of platonic life forms within the lake during the season during the day may additionally play part to the color change which is pretty cool now mount gambia the town literally this is in the town so it's not it's like just outside uh the town of mount gambia and its other subterranean features are actually going to be the topic of my next two text town talk on the 20th of february so while this is a short one this is but a taste of the incredible geography that is around the southeast South Australia, particularly in the town of Mangambia. So come a two-parter. A two-parter because there's a lot to talk about with subterranean features in the town of Mount Gambia. And the town itself has a long storied history. So I didn't want to go too much. I felt like we got the lake from last week or last yep. fortnight. We got the lake this time. Instead of doing a huge, big, long one, we're going to break this into a two-parter. So remember, oh, I like that, that bit of continuity. Remember that lake. Remember that cave that might be in that lake. And we'll come back in a fortnight, and we're going to talk more about Mount Gambia. I don't have nightmares about bloody underwater caving. So hey, that was a that's a, a, a impressive blue. Did you, uh, and sorry, you're probably going to have to go back on your your notes here. Uh, They said they were sort of speculating about why it could be just so blue. Did you say one of them was the seasonal position of the sun? Yes. Uh, That's interesting. So they think the the solar elevation being the position of the sun in the sky yeah has actually been found to influence the perceived color of the lake now that may be because well i mean it's almost certainly because of the refraction of the light through the water Mm. um but it also may be because we know there is platonic life so microorganisms within the lake they also may 
be more active when the solar elevation's sort of out at zenith or something like that, which may also play a part into the the color of the lake changing. That's speculation, but there's something going on with the elevation of the sun and where it is in relation to the surface of the water that definitely appears to have a, re- a direct correlation on the color of the lake, which isn't out of the realm of, of um, scientific theory, considering our last lake a fortnight ago was pink and very milky pink, uh, bubblegum pink, uh, that was completely controlled by the micro microbacteria that were in, found inside the lake. So the fact that it changes and becomes more blue with the sun, to me, understanding how that lake system works kind of makes sense. Though mm. this lake is very clear. So at the same time, I think it, it can't, it mustn't have as much to do with it compared to say our milky pink chocolate, uh, uh, strawberry milk, like from last last fortnight ago, so oh, because it ha- it's it happens uh, like it's a it's a regular thing, like it's it's a it's a seasonal thing. You said, didn't you? So mm-hmm. you could you could literally plan to go up to Mount Gambier to see the Blue Lake and uh, have reasonable expectations. You're not going to get dudded. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, the, and the reason I think, and again, I'm not 100% sure of this, but sort of reading between the lines, I think the reason that there is not as much research into the lake as probably a lot of listeners, even myself, would like to know, like, I want to know about that cave, um, if it exists and, and what the deal is, uh, mm. because I think at this point, it's uh, a, a bit of a protected environment so there is a little bit of the bureaucracy that's getting involved uh with some of the research in the lake also i think part of as well is this lake isn't as uh let's say scientifically sexy as some of the other colored lakes in australia uh like our lake from last week which is pink is not a normal color of a lake you know blue you know There are blue lakes in the world. Whilst it's beautiful and incredible and you should go and visit it, um, you know, if you were doing your microbiology, marine biology course, this is probably not high on your list of places to go compared to, say, some of the other uh, more uh, crazy-coloured or rainbow lakes, as we like to call them. Oh, very interesting. I'd be interested to... I'll be looking forward to, uh, well, that'll be in a fort- fortnight's time because I'll be doing Two Ticks Town Talk. So, yeah, listeners, stay stay tuned for a fortnight to hear more about Mount Gambia. Interesting, DK. And I know someone's going to, they're driving, kicking themselves right now, going, screaming, and they're speaking, <laughs> saying, can you swim in it? I want to go for a swim in the Blue Lake. And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I have seen photos of people swimming in it, but I'm pretty sure they were for the photo op. I don't think it doesn't appear uh, the, like it's in a crater. So the rim is is not there's no beach or anything. It's quite right. It, right. It's like cliffs all around it. So I don't think it's something you can really get access to. Um, yeah. Don't know. Uh, don't go and do it. I don't <laughs> recommend it. 
If you if you're listening to this, go and have a look. Don't bring your swimmers. <laughs> oh, very good. All right, let's move on. Australia's inflation has fall falls further than expected as prices rise at slowest pace in almost two years. So some great news for everyone. Australia's inflation rate has slowed in November, reinforcing expectations by the Reserve Bank's key interest rate has peaked. The high-line consumer price index for the month was 4.3% down from October's 4.9%. It shows that prices were rising at their slowest pace since the 4% reported in January 2022. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, welcomed the drop while adding that inflation was still higher than he would like. Labor's policies were helping to put downward pressure on inflation, but we know that there's more work to do because people are still under pressure, he said. Michelle Marquard, the head of prices statistics at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, said that housing prices continued to rise up from 6.6% from a year ago, while food and non-alcoholic beverages rose 4.6%, and insurance and financial services were up 8.8%. Excluding volatile items from the monthly CPI indicator, the annual rise in November was 4.8%, lower than the annual rise of 5.1% in October. And... The good news keeps on coming because breaking news, as of a few hours ago, the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept its cash rate at 4.35%. In its post-meeting statement, the RBA board said inflation had clearly eased, but it was still high at 4.1%. So 4.1% is as it currently stands. The, The figures we were talking about before are from October and November. You've got to remember that when we're calculating these sort of figures, it's always in the past, um, and we're never going to know until really those months wash up and we crunch the numbers and everything like that. So we're always kind of looking backwards with these things. Yep. It said its central forecast was for inflation to return to the target range of 2 to 3% in 2025 and to the midpoint of that range in 2026. So also remembering that the RBAs, the Reserve Bank of Australia, their job essentially is to protect the value of the dollar is a good way to describe it in really simple layman's terms. Mm-hmm. And for that to be done, they want a target inflation rate of 2 to 3% per annum. So at the moment, they're trying to drive that, those, those ranges down. Though it warned, the RBA, it warned, there was a high level of uncertainty around the outlook for a Chinese economy, the consequences of the conflict in Ukraine and in the Middle East, and how these might impact Australia's economy. You know, if we look back to a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Yemen and the potential onflow of fuel prices and the price of consumer goods, particularly those from Europe, through shutting down trade through the Red Sea, etc., etc. It said further increases in interest rates cannot be ruled out and that the board would continue to pay close attention to developments in the global economy. So whilst there is good news, don't 
go out buying oh. houses and Lamborghinis and everything just yet because I know you're all about to do that. Damn it. We're not exactly out of hot water. It's cautiously optimistic, let's put it that way. Um, but I think the RBA governor is also very aware of the fact that they have made some very public mistakes in the past about these predictions and they do not want to be making those sort of things, those sort of mistakes in the future. So they're very cautiously optimistic, but warned, you know, make your own decisions. The rates are staying as they are right now, but that's not to say that they won't go up in the future, depending on what the global economy does. It's almost, it's, it's almost like humans aren't very good at predicting the future. Uh, you can have got to get many, that crystal ball recalibrated. Yeah, you have as many models as you you like, but that doesn't mean that um, they can, they can be as shiny and glittery as possible. That doesn't mean that they're accurate. But yeah, and look, a, a reminder that we often drop into these conversations to our our listeners is that inflation is cumulative meaning that just because the um, rate has gone down doesn't mean that it somehow uh, is it, it somehow compensates for the the quarter before where it was still or the year before where it was still high so every you know, you've, you've got a, a thing that's a hundred bucks you throw you know two percent inflation on that it's a hundred and two bucks. But then, if you've got a, even if inflation goes down to, you know, one point eight percent after that, that inflation is still on the hundred and two dollar one, the increased one. It doesn't go backwards. And look, unless you have a situation where there's negative inflation, um, just remember this is just building on top and on top and on top. So there's a little bit of a magician's trick they try to pull here saying, look, isn't this wonderful? We've got inflation down and uh, deliberately leave out the fact, yeah, but you're still paying for what we did in order to uh, in increase inflation uh, previously. So, And it should be said, yeah, uh, I'll just jump in here. Yep. Because uh, I'm I'm a finance guy as well. Uh, it, it re when inflation reverses, it's called deflation, obviously. Uh, mm. And the reason that deflation is uh, sort of bad, or why why the Reserve Bank and 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 all these global banks do not want a deflation event occurring, even though you feel like it would be beneficial. Uh, you know, to, to the average consumer, um, deflation really discourages investment and it freaks everyone out. So basically what you have is why would you uh, essentially invest your money to increase your wealth, which is how capitalism basically works, right? Um, you invest your capital and then expect a return. In a deflation event where money is effectively getting cheaper, uh, you are suddenly disin uh, disincentivized to make those sort of investments. Yeah. Um, why, would, why would you pay uh, $50,000 for a car that you are fairly confident in six months' time is going to be forty, yeah, forty-eight thousand dollars. Exactly. So you're, you're you're anything that you're looking at getting 
is reducing in value, essentially. So you, what you want to do is squirrel everything away and just sit on it and wait for this to pass. The problem is in a deflationary event, it can be very hard. It can be a bit of a snowball type situation. Same as in an inflationary event, but there are there are levers and mechanisms uh, that banks have to, to sort of rein inflation in that are probably more effective or more powerful within the scope of like human psychology uh, than a in a deflationary event. So what I'm trying to say is deflation is is very bad for the economy, particularly in a long-term type situation. And it's very uh, like it's very unlikely something that like that is gonna happen. So whilst it's good news that inflation is getting under control, do not think that things are gonna go back to how they were. They're not. No, no. No, because that's the uh that's that's the other thing we you know we're talking in these we're talking in the numbers um yeah historically these are low numbers however they're still you know they still have a significant impact because they're within the context of the current um economy but when you hear something like you know the the inflation rate has uh, or sorry when you hear something like you know the yes the, the rate has gone from uh say you know Two percent to three percent. That's actually a fifty percent increase. Uh, so they are actually large increases and decreases that we're seeing, even though the number itself sounds um, sounds small. So the rates that we had before of I can't straight, RBA got down to point two five, did they? Point point three five or something? Did we? We didn't uh, go to yeah. zero, but what was we? we- we never went into negative interest rates. Negative interest no. rates are a thing, um, but we didn't. Uh, there are other reserve banks that did, um, but no, you can't just go out and buy a house and the bank pay you to that. No, that's not how it works. It's to do with the reserve bank paying banks and, and other financial organizations and stuff like that. But th- that's a whole complicated story. Plus, also how banks treat their customers, as we alluded to in the conversation on uh, cons- conscription in the analogy that I was using. But yes, look, I suppose the point where there was was backing up your thing of just because it's come down doesn't mean we're heading ba- down to where we were because where we were was actually a a long way away. So look, while look to me, it's a it's a positive change, but yeah, you know, one slightly thinner swallow does not a spring make. Exactly. Um, and it is, look, it is frustrating as well. I went to Coles this morning uh, and I bought seemingly not a, not a lot. And I think it cost me $75 or something like that. And I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I bought a lot of stuff. Um, certainly not a week's worth of food or, or anything crazy like that. I'd like... It was a couple of, you know, uh, just a couple of bits and bobs sort of thing. So um, I feel like sharp shop, sharp shop smarter, but don't expect things to go back down because they're never going to go back to what they are. That's not how the system works. Um, when it comes time for you, your yearly review at work, see if you can negotiate an increase in pay, but don't get 
too excited because that may or may not happen. Um, we're going to be doing it tough for a little bit longer yet, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I think you're right. All right, let's move on to this week in Australian history. Right, this week in Australian history, we're covering to the 1st to the 7th of February. February already. February 1, 1977, the Federal Court of Australia opens. Uh, 1981, cricketer Trevor Chappell Chappell bowls an underarm ball against New Zealand, causing outrage with officials and fans. So that was in 1981, and that's been completely forgotten by the New Zealanders. (laughs) (laughs) Never gets brought up at all in any cricket match whatsoever. It's just just water under the bridge. So for our listeners overseas who have vaguely heard of of cricket, uh, it was considered a very unsportsmanlike thing to do because by bowling an underarm ball, the person wasn't able to hit it into the air and hit it out for six or in some other parlance as a home run or... I think I've just exhausted my whole realm of sport. <laughs> but basically they dudded the Kiwis and it's just never been forgotten. And there's plenty of Australians like me who think, eh, fair enough, shouldn't have been forgotten. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that at the time I don't think it was against the rules either. Oh, it was within the rules. And, yeah. And, and just if you were just purely game gaming it out, it was an intelligent thing to do, but it was, as they say, just not cricket. A poor sportsman, you know. We, mm. even though it's not against the rules, doesn't mean it's it's morally and ethically correct. Um, and honestly, I don't give a shit because I don't watch cricket. So, <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much here as well. But it's 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 a real uh, a real cultural thing across the. Um, I'm bleeding. It costs a Tasman, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Uh, 1984, on February 1st, Medicare comes into effect. Uh, 2004, the first Garn passenger train across Australia from Adelaide to Darwin sets off on its three-day journey. Does it get there? Wait for the rest of the history. February 2nd, <laughs> look, it does. That's not really exciting. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know it didn't make it. Is that yeah. terrible foreshadowing? Yeah, I don't want to build that up too much. It'll be a bit of a letdown. Uh, <laughs> February 2nd, 1808, William Patterson sets sail to Sydney from Port Dalrymple to take over the administration of New South Wales following the removal of Governor Bly. 1880. The first successful shipment of frozen mutton from Australia arrived in London aboard the SS Strathleven. Uh, so, yeah, Australia riding on the sheep back as uh, an export for Australia that was uh, that was that was momentous. And uh, how how are you on mutton? Do you like mutton? I. <laughs> For dinner tonight, I made lamb pies from a uh, lamb shoulder that I cooked yesterday. So, oh, excellent! But it wasn't mutton. No, I'm not. Uh, mutton is 
and not something that I'm not I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, look, I've had a it a couple of times. Aren't. I've had it cooked I've had like on the spit and Ooh, uh, no. it was quite nice, but um, I'm more of a buy it that day, cook it kind of guy, and I actually more can't of a even think. Lamb rather yeah. than the old, older, older lamb <laughs> I, mutton. I honestly, I don't know where I could even buy mutton these days. Oh, not thanks. not locally. I think I would have to order it in if I wanted it, or that's I would have to go out point. to one of the farms or something like that. Hmm. Oh, well, actually, that's a good point. Yeah, my nan used to cook mutton. And um, a lot of my cousins just uh, really couldn't stomach the smell of it because it it smells really like lamb, like it's a yeah. it's a heavy, heavy lamb smell. But uh, yeah, I thought it was delicious. It can be a bit almost gamey in that way. Oh, yeah. um, yep. Like I've had goat that's akin to mutton. It's old yeah. goat, you know, or like a mountain goat. I've had that a couple of times, and that's, uh, you know, ha- ah. again, delicious, but, you know, has that t- taste and and that smell. You're right. I think half the problem is the smell. That for yeah. a lot of people, it's too overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 1982, Lindy Chamberlain was committed to trial for murdering her baby, Azaria. A uh, famous uh, case, well, worldwide known, or well, certainly known a lot of people around the world. 1998, a constitutional convention begins to decide which mode of republic should be put before the people of Australia in a referendum. And they dudded us on that question. February, uh, yeah. Yeah. Another time. Yeah, exactly. February 3rd, 1954. Queen Elizabeth arrives in Australia with Prince Philip on a royal tour. 1967, Ronald Ryan is hanged at Melbourne's Pentridge Jail, Gale, uh, becoming the last person to be legally executed in Australia. 1983, Bob Hawke becomes leader of the Australian Labor Party, one of our uh, better-known prime ministers. An absolute legend he was. He was a bit of a legend, yeah. Look, And he was, again, hearkening back to our conversation on conscription, he, had, he was an example of quite a, a, a unifying leader. I mean, yeah. Didn't sort of agree with everything that he did and blah, blah, blah. But uh, in terms of Australians getting behind a head of state as opposed to what it is now, the ruling party, Hawke was one of the last ones, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I feel like we've got a lot more divided since then. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I mean, he did try to bring in the Australia card in 1985 during his thing is where I start to see the descent of Australia into a surveillance strait, etc. However, he did have that um, he did have that unifying uh, effect. Uh, 2004, phew, the Garn arrives in Darwin, completing the first <laughs> <laughs> passenger rail journey from Adelaide to Darwin. February 4th in 1942, in the Battle of Rabaul, 
158 Australian prisoners of war are massacred in the Toy Plantation Massacre in the, the New Guinea campaign. I didn't know about that. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Again, war's no good, yeah? No. Yep. 1964, Cyclone Doris strikes northwest Queensland. February 5 in 1869, a gold nugget, well, people who've listened to last week's episode should know this one, a gold nugget named Welcome Stranger is <laughs> discovered at Mollegal in Victoria, the largest alluvial gold find. So if you want details on that uh, Welcome Stranger uh, nugget, listen to our podcast from last week where Mulligal was the uh, Two Ticks Town Talk. And we also do a, as you probably noticed if you're subscribed, subscribe we do a standalone segment extracted from the main podcast which we put up on on saturday morning on the two ticks town talk 1932 february 5th nine people die in bushfires in gippsland victoria 1938 the british empire games begin in sydney and 1985, Australia cancels its involvement in US-led MX missile tests. Uh, February 6, 1788, the first female convicts arrive at Port Jackson. I can imagine there was a lot of feelings about that happening. A lot of excitement, I'd imagine. <laughs> I would think so. Counting down the days, I'm sure. Bloody hell. 1851, uh, Black, Black Thursday, as bushfires rage from Mount, Mount Gambia to Melbourne. Uh, 1938, Black Sunday at Bondi Beach, Sydney, where 300 swimmers are dragged out to sea in three freak waves. Uh, 80, li 80 lifesavers save all but five, which is a... Massive wow. effort. I—it's very impressive. It is impressive. Yeah, freak ways. That's bloody a lot of people to get dragged out. Uh, Nineteen eighty-four. A bomb blast wrecks the home of High Court Judge Richard Gee in the Sydney suburb of Belrose. Nineteen ninety-one. Roma Mitchell is appointed Governor of South Australia, and she was the first female governor of an Australian state. Like once again, South Australia. Yeah, it wasn't Victoria, was it? <laughs> February 7th, 1788, the colony of New South Wales is officially created with Arthur Phillip as the first governor. 1967, bushfires in Tasmania destroy over a 1,000 homes and take 62 lives. Uh, 1969, nine people were killed in the Violet Town Railway disaster. 1986, Lindy Chamberlain is released from prison after serving three years upon the finding of a new evidence, which eventually led a judge to overturn her conviction. So she had a real bloody rough trot. Ugh. 2009, in February 7th, um, Rounds out this week in Australian history, and once again, bushfires in Victoria left over 100 dead in the deadliest bushfires in Australia's history. So look, it's not surprising that there are so many bushfires in history this week, given the, 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 the summer 
time of the year is so hot for much of Australia. Um, I reckon when the fire has got a break, which they get bugger all breaks in these big bushfires, I reckon that a few of them sat down and had a beer. That takes us to our 4X bottle top quiz. Now, I we've got two here. One's from a 4X, and this first one is from a Carlton Draft bottle top, which I... Oh, I always on. loved the uh, Carlton Draft ads. Very good. They were very funny. The, the horses... Oh, oh no, no, right, the... Um, the one set in the the pub with the it was a usually a dopey bloke there, wasn't it? There was a lot of Carlton draft ads that were very funny through the decades. They're a bit like uh, for our international listeners that may know, like the Guinness ads have been quite funny in the past. Uh, oh, yeah, the Carlton yeah. draft kind of did the same thing. Um, I definitely think they peaked. I think it was in two thousand and six, two thousand. Five, something like that, where they did the the quote unquote big ad. Um, and if you haven't seen it, maybe I'll post it on Friday for our Friday funny because it's That's an absolutely cracker of, a, of an advertisement. Um, and it lives in my head rent free. It's like elevator music for me. Ha! Huh. Oh, good. Okay, we'll post it for our funny Friday. All right. What symbol is used for the unit of electrical resistance, the ohm? Um, do I have to describe what it looks like or because <laughs> I don't know what it's called? Oh, well, okay. If you don't know what it's it's called, describe what it looks like and I'll tell you if that's the um it's like fun to hear you describe this. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know the shape of it. I don't know. It's probably a Greek letter, I'm sure. It is. Uh, it is a Greek letter. Yeah, but I don't know what what one of it is. I mean, it looks like an O with the bottom, like, with, like, a gap in the bottom and it's got, like, legs? Yeah, okay, that's a good is enough it, is description. It a, like is it that a dropped Amiga? a circle and it splattered. Amiga is exactly yeah, okay. correct. I just, uh, The only reason I say that, I guessed Amiga, is because it's Ohm. That makes sense, right? O for Amiga. I don't know. Well, I... Uh, I, I Oh, God, I'm trying to remember whether Ohm was named after somebody and whether... I think Amiga, it was, yeah. Amiga just uh, um, was conveniently sounded the same. But, yeah, okay, well done. Right, this one. <laughs> Let's go to our strength here, men's cricket. The, <laughs> <laughs> the inaugural Men's Cricket World Cup was played in 1975. What year was the women's? Oh, mate. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, honestly, the Cricket World Cup starting in, what did you say, 1975? 1975, yeah. Uh, Cricket World Cup. If you asked me what year it started, I would have been completely wrong. I would have thought it was... A bloody institution that went back millennia, you know. Holy moly! I wouldn't have thought it started in the seventies. My goodness. Well, it's 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 tied in with something like the international cricket. I think when things started getting a little bit more uh, commercialised, it got taken from the gentleman's game. 
to uh, a little bit more of, oh, shit, we can make a buck out of this. <laughs> yeah, fair. Okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, look, and I, 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 there may be, be a whole lot of cricket fans saying, you idiot, you know nothing, and you'd be yeah. right. Yeah, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> However, this was, this was, a, this was a, a, an interesting one. There will be dun, 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 a twist. Oh, okay. See, the question when, all right. So, my thought process is this because I have absolutely no idea, right? Um, is I'm gonna assume it was after 1975, but this could be a double bluff, and it could have been that the women's maybe weren't they didn't suffer from as many, uh, uh, say traditions or institutions, and so maybe women's cricket started their own World Cup before the men's World Cup. Oh, when, when would that have happened? I don't know. Medal for reasoning for DK. So, yep, you're exactly on the right track. Let's say 1960. 69, I don't know. Uh, not, look, not far off. It was 1973, making it cricket's oldest world championship. Do you know what? That just tickles me in a way. Oh, same that... here. <laughs> <laughs> same here. I thought oh, I've got to include that question just for that joy. <laughs> so, so it was because, so it was, as I, as I guessed, the men's, didn't have a World Cup because they had other competitions that sort of superseded the World Cup, and it wasn't until the 75, possibly because the girls had their own World Cup, that it became a thing, right? Uh, you remember that a moment ago when I said about my complete knack of cricket? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll go with that. We'll go with, yeah, with yeah. Insert that there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I- Matt, thank you so much. I can't believe that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at RSS Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mama lover. Thanks, DK. See ya. See ya.